tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's said to be one of only 74 radio stations in the country, and it is supposed to help during a disaster, either natural or man-made. Hawaii joins other states in securing an emergency broadcast studio where operators could live on site for two months. It is at KHKA Antenna Tower, a site uh, owned by uh, IO's Dwayne Carisu, which broadcasts CBS Sports. We talked to Carisu after a media tour of the station site yesterday. We also spoke with uh, FEMA program manager Manny Centeno, who leads us off. This facility depends on broadcast radio. We have 74 radio stations all over the country that participate in the National Public Warning System, also known as Primary Entry Point, or PEP. This is the first one in Hawaii, and this is necessary in order to maintain communications with the public in times of extreme emergencies. It is important that the authorities, both local, state, and federal, be able to address the public and let them know what's going on and provide reassurance in in times of emergencies. Having a broadcast facility that is survivable and resilient to most hazards that the state can get is important to the community. Okay, we did have the missile alert, and I know there was a time when we got no word. We we didn't get any confirmation that it was, you know, a drill uh, uh, and to ignore it, and it caused a lot of panic. So this then system would uh, allow us to communicate better? Well, that communication is really up to the state and local authorities. The tool is there. Um, the tool was there at the time to communicate effectively, but we leave that to the, our state and local partners to disseminate the timely information. What we are doing here is making sure that there is a tool that's survivable should something happen, right, for something real happen. This is where this system comes into play. I'm thinking back when the presidents used to address the nation during mm-hmm. times of war. Tensions are not good right now globally. Exactly. So. Should something terrible happen, whether it's man-made or a natural disaster, where our communication systems are down, be that mobile phones, television, Internet, and things like that, this facility at this radio station is expected to remain operational because of the resiliency that we've built into it. So by having that, folks can then tune to the station and receive the necessary information that they need, not just as an alert, but as a continuing broadcast to the public. Catherine, what, yes. what, it, what I saw for the first time was was this enclosed pod, basically, where, where the broadcast station was. So I was told by Manny that someone could stay in there, well, two people can stay in there for 60 days. There's a bathroom and a bed, and the, the doors are fully enclosed and air-conditioned. So it's truly remarkable what they've thought through in order to, to provide this service. And they're using your antenna? Yes, they are. And this was an antenna that you had to move, a tower you had to move because you were initially in the path of rail. Uh, so you yes. moved Malka, and that also and is the site of the uh, Kahuiki Homeless Village. <laughs> yeah, so... I think it was more than coincidence that this all happened because Kahoiki Village followed the antenna where now we have a community of over 650 adults and children who were formerly homeless. They now call that property home. And so together with FEMA on the property, the place truly becomes a Uhunua, a place of refuge. And so I understand that this was like five years in the making. Manny, I mean, is this like typical uh, as you folks start to uh, provide this tool for the different states across the country? Yeah, it is. You know, we have to look at the coverage situation. Uh, You know, our mandate is to cover a minimum of 90 percent of the U.S. population. So we want to cover as many people. That's one of the reasons we use AM radios, because AM radio has a vast coverage area. Then there are other factors that come into play. We need the space to be able to put these systems in, these shelters, you know, large fuel tanks, generators, and it all has to be secured by a fence and so on and so forth. So not only do we have to find a suitable radio station that has a property large enough to fit all this stuff in, but also we have to find folks like Dwayne that are able, willing to partner with us in uh, allowing us to put this stuff at his station. Dwayne doesn't get paid for this. He's volunteering his station and his his property 
uh, at that site in order to allow the government to install that equipment. Now, that is equipment that is going to be operated by the radio station, but it's completely a public interest matter for KHKA. So they're doing this as a matter of public service. And so, Dwayne, is it then one of your workers that gets to stay in this pod? <laughs> I think, well, that's for FEMA to decide. But, you know, it's uh, it, this whole project is fitting for us because it, it sits right on top of why our companies exist and what our vision is for the future of Hawaii. And we're just so thankful that from, from our side to FEMA and to Manny that they put their trust in us so that we could welcome them to our family. So share with our listeners what your mission is. Well, our, our vision is what every company that we have has a larger vision for their existence. And they all uniformly strive to build a better Hawaii. But more importantly, it's about providing service and for people globally. Actually, the radio station properties and belongs to um, IO Foundation, which is a 501c3. And what does IO mean? You, you know, like Aloha, um, IO has different meanings to different people. If you look at the, the dictionary, the, the, the translation is uh, the unseen power beneath a bro- unbroken wave. And for us, really, IO is, is mana. It's about uh, the power that drives all of us to, to build a better life. Well, Manny, I have to ask, you know, you, you mentioned our dependence on AM radio to broadcast, but just recently, I think I saw a news story about how I think it was one of the automakers was saying, we want to drop AM radio in the cars. So how does that work? Well, we have been working with the auto industry, the National Association of Broadcasters and other groups, the state uh, broadcast associations around the country, including here, the Hawaii Association of Broadcasters, uh, through uh, Chris Leonard, its president, to educate and um, try to get the audio industry to understand that AM radio is important. More than 70 million Americans listen to AM radio every day, and many Americans in the millions listen to AM and FM radio. It's still a viable method for reaching the public. On Monday, the chief executive officer of Ford announced that they are going to be keeping the AM radios in their cars. There is uh, members of Congress are working on legislation and other items to convince the auto industry to keep radios in their car and in the vehicle. So we are, we're gaining momentum on that. We support the broadcast industry. Not all of our NPWS TEP stations are AM. We have 11 FMs that we also have in the program. It all depends, again, on reaching a large number of the American public. And if we can do that through AM, we'll do it through AM. And if we can do it through FM, we'll do it as well. And what about a concern that people might have? You're in the in the zone for a tsunami, right? So how does that work? We do a, an analysis of hazards before we put any of these facilities anywhere. And we have to balance those hazards. We have to away the types of hazards that we have in a certain location and you know we can't focus on just one so tsunami is one hazard that we have to be aware of our equipment is approximately 11 and a half feet above sea level so it would survive a moderate tsunami if much larger tsunami was to affect that area other radio and television stations on the island would be able to remain operational and therefore you don't need that emergency broadcast facility However, if a very large hurricane was to hit Oahu and the other stations are off the air for one reason or another, you know, ran out of fuel, no more power, the towers went down, and other problems that we've seen elsewhere, then this site is expected to survive. It could be a high-altitude electromagnetic pulse attack, right, in times of, of war. It could be a solar, what we call space weather. It could be other types of, uh, of hazards that manifest themselves in such a way that the entire power grid could be down. These facilities are designed to operate independently for 60 days without having to refuel and without need of the electric grid. So it all depends where we are, what the hazards are, and how we can balance those hazards across a large list of hazards that we use. And then who mans it? Who mans it is primarily the radio station personnel because they are going to be on the air, right? And 
Every broadcaster operates in the public interest. We are training staff right now from the station in the use of those uh, facilities. There are other broadcasters on in the in the state that have come forth. I mentioned Chris Leonard, the president of the Hawaii Association of Broadcasters, who would uh, come in and support KHKA in those emergency broadcasts to relieve their people, to allow them to rest, and to pr- provide additional information. So this is not just you know one broadcaster manning it per se. This is also other broadcasting broadcasters contributing along with the state and local agencies. And that includes Catherine Cruz. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to ask Manny, isn't there a transponder that also sends signal to our brothers and sisters in American Samoa? Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, your site uh, there that we just sailed, Duane, is a relay site for us to be able to maintain communications with Guam and American Samoa as well. So... Uh, you notice there's two satellite dishes, large satellite dishes there. One dish is yeah. looking at the continental U- U.S. where we have our, our main network. The other dish is looking at the Pacific area where we have another smaller network for those areas in the Pacific. So this site here is an important site also for the relay of that type of information to Guam and American Samoa. Okay, and then uh, just because I have Guam on my mind because of that super typhoon, and we're still, uh, you know, waiting for information about the extent of damage, and, and we're waiting for the yes. storm to clear. But our NPWS DEP site in Guam is operational at this time. We are in contact with our partners there over satellite phone. You know, there is a lot of damage, as was to be expected. The power uh, system is down, but the uh, the radio station is on the air which is extremely important for the community. That was FEMA's program manager for the National Public Warning System, Manny Centeno and IO's CEO, Dwayne Crisu, talking about a new setup at an antenna tower off Nimitz Highway that aims to improve emergency broadcast communications during a disaster. Government officials in Guam have just started to assess the damage from Super Typhoon Mawar. The winds and rain have subsided enough for crews to see what the storms left in the path. No deaths or serious injuries have been reported. And with the exception of humanitarian and cargo flights, there are no uh, commercial flights operating at this time. The Federal Emergency Management Agency FEMA spokesman, spokesperson Robert Barker uh, spoke with us from Guam this morning. Governor of Guam, she has requested a major disaster declaration in response to Typhoon Mawar. Specifically, she requested emergency protective measures under FEMA's public assistance program. And what that means is some examples could include like temporary medical facilities, helping the island with search and rescue operations, perhaps uh, security or law enforcement, inspection of uh, eligible public facilities, or even the um, operation cost of their emergency center, which is operating at 24-7, just monitoring all the, the goings on on the island. I checked a website, and the last I saw that the flights are still not operating in and out of Guam, but that I think cargo and humanitarian assistance, uh, that that may be cleared. Yeah, I know we have some flights coming in tonight with uh, with some folks from FEMA Region 9 and our FEMA headquarters, but I'm not sure if that's going through the traditional channels. But yeah, well, I know we have more folks coming in uh, actually right now. We have more than 150 FEMA staff deployed or pre-staged in the Pacific and able you know, to quickly support uh, territorial and local response efforts here. We also have 320 personnel supporting uh, across the country. Most of those are, are based in our D.C. headquarters. Well, you know, you were able to, to get out once the wind subsided. Uh, what does it look like out there? Yesterday I was out and about. There's a lot of vegetative debris uh, all over the road. I mean, in fact, it's blocking uh, a number of roads. I drove as far as I could uh, south yesterday and uh, I had to turn around because my compact car couldn't go through some of the uh, the deep water. There's a lot of standing water on the roads as well, so uh, folks are kind of swerving kind of in and out, but uh, respectfully because um, all, all the standing water and also all the vegetative debris on the roads. But I saw a lot of uh, public works folks out there. They were uh, clearing the, ro- the roads, cutting the trees, the debris. So I assume today it's going to be uh, a lot better than what it was yesterday when I was out yesterday morning. And the power is still out to most of the island from what I understand. And so in communication spotty. I mean, we had trouble connecting, you know, just this morning. Yeah, that's right. It's it's still spotty. Um, 
Uh, luckily, here where I am in the in the capital, it's been kind of intermittent, in and out, but uh, mostly on. So lucky for us here, especially in in comms, communicating with uh, with our teams uh, across the island and with local and territorial officials. But yeah, especially in the north of the island, we're hearing uh, reports that there there are uh, power outages still, but we're helping support the island in, in uh, a number of generators. We have more than 60 generators in route to the Pacific, and 100 are already in use in Guam. We have a distribution center here that has commodities from food, water, again, uh, over 100 generators, uh, much more, in fact, than, than we had uh, in the response after uh, Mencut, uh, four times as many. So we, we have the supplies here, and we have more ready and, uh, and loaded up as needed, uh, especially when we get the go-ahead to, uh, to be able to move those and, and the transportation routes clear up. What else can you share uh, with us at, at this time? I mean, no, it's just a matter of clearing the roads and then, you know, getting the crews to see, you know, what they can do about the power lines. Yeah, well, we're working with our territorial and local authorities. It's, it's really a whole community effort. They're leading the way, and FEMA's here to support coordinating the, the federal support across all of government to help the people here and the government and the communities of Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands. And, um, you know, we're bringing the resources, the personnel, and the teams to assist with life-saving and life-sustaining activities. Yeah, from what I understand, uh, no word yet on injuries or, or, or casualties, uh, but it just sounds like it could have been way worse. Yes, that's what I heard as well. Uh, the governor of Guam uh, released a video yesterday confirming just that, that um, there have been no reports of any fatalities or any significant injuries as well. So we got lucky there. And so what was it like for you? I don't know. Is this your first super typhoon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Uh, it was very, very uh, loud, uh, a lot of wind, a lot of rain. The uh, hotel lost power multiple times throughout the night. There were loud sirens going off in the hotel, warning us to go outside and uh, and take shelter and be advised for additional updates. That happened half a dozen times. So I was waking up, going outside, waking up, going outside with you know alarms blazing and the wind and the uh, and the uh, rain you know falling hard, uh, just kind of shaking the the windows. It was an experience. So. Uh, yeah, definitely the first one, and hopefully it's the last. Well, I know that uh, there are probably tourists uh, that were scrambling to try and get out there, and I don't know what other accommodations are being made, you know, because once they give the okay for the airports to open, then they can fly people out. Uh, and then people who are traveling and want to get home to their loved ones, you know, uh, you know, they'd like to get back. Yeah, that's right. I um, actually I got here Monday night right before everything uh, kicked up and the storm started, and I went to Kmart, which was apparently everyone's idea. And I actually ran into some some tourists from Korea, and they were telling me that they came, they booked their vacation two or three months in advance. And I guess unlucky for them, it was right around the time all I was hitting, and they were supposed to leave that next morning, right when it uh, right when it came through. So they're probably stuck here. And uh, but lucky they were uh, loading up on supplies at the time, just in case they weren't going to be able to make it out and uh and one of the girls told me that she was um you know expecting to go back to work the next day so presumably yeah sure her her plans had to change along with her boyfriend so yeah there are definitely a number of tourists on the island uh, i was surprised in fact by a number of, of folks out here from you know all different countries so yeah i mean there's folks you know in the hotel from all around the world so uh it was it was a surprise to see and and i guess they plan these vacations long in advance, and uh, unlucky for them, it was right around the time that Marvel came through. Well, if power's out, I mean, do uh, you have water? How's the water pressure? Yeah, well, where, where I am, I have power, I have water, I have my phone's working fine. I, I have everything, so I'm I'm fine where I am, at least in my little nook of the island. But uh, but you know, regrettably, that's that's not the same for everyone. But I know there are a number of shelters that are up and operational, uh, helping to support the folks uh, across the island. So um, we're making sure that they have everything they need from from food, water, generators, uh, just to, you know, ensure everyone's safety and to uh, to make sure they're getting what they need in, in this time, especially given the, uh, the difficulties after the, uh, you know, the slow uh, recovery process that we're going through right now. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Robert Barker. And uh, stay safe on the roads, though. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
Uh, that was Robert Barker with FEMA. He flew into Guam to help coordinate response efforts as the community there tries to deal with the aftermath of Super Typhoon Mawar, which veered a path just north of the tiny island, avoiding, avoiding a more serious hit as it was packing winds of 140 mile an hour, miles an hour. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Clarissa Clara Hailey was born in Honolulu in 1901 and followed an unlikely path to stardom. She became one of Hawaii's most beloved entertainers. At first, her trademark comedy hula routine was only for her students at Waipahu Elementary School. But after a while, she wanted to branch out. She loved to perform and began singing venues around Oahu. In 1936, as a member of a 25-voice chorale group, uh, Louise Akeo Royal Hawaiian Girls Glee Club. As a member of the ensemble, she was paid a dollar a night. And in one of those classic A Star is Born stories of one night on a cruise ship gig, she filled in for a performer who felt ill. She adapted a catchy tune by Don McDermott Sr. and Johnny Noble to her quirky persona, making her attempts at a graceful hula into a comedic bit. That became her signature tune, and other hits followed. By the time she signed on to the cast of the legendary uh, program, Hawaii Calls, her future was assured. Today, we are looking for her stage name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to the Kingston Trio, Japanese Cultural Center of Kona, and Guild Consulting. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Partners at Honolulu Civil Beat have been tracking the corruption cases at the city's Department of Planning and Permitting. Reporter Christina Jedra has the latest. Hi, Christina. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yes. And so, gosh, uh, you know, you've been been uh, <laughs> looking closely at the developments in court uh, because this has really dragged out for a very long time. That's right. There's been a lot of cases to track. Um, it was uh, five former DPP employees, actually, and one current employee, um, and an architect. And so um, the most egregious of those cases came to an end yesterday. Uh, Wayne Noy was the chief building inspector uh, at DPP, and he worked there for almost 40 years. Um, and now he's headed to prison for five years and will have to pay a $100,000 fine uh, after he was found uh, and admitted to bribery over the course of, of years. Now, you know, DPP has just been plagued with complaints, uh, and, uh, you know, I know that folks are kind of frustrated at, uh, you know, how things have, have played out over the years, and then to find the details about these cases mm -hmm. is just, it's been so revealing. 
right? It's, it's kind of confirmation of what everyone has sort of known. It's kind of an open secret that this has gone on for so long. And um, to for the feds to really pin down the details and get these cases through, um, I think I've, I've been hearing a lot of gratitude from the community that they, you know, they want to put an end to this. Yeah, and uh, Inouye got the harshest prison sentence, right? Right. So Inouye uh, will be in prison for five years. Um, so there are already two of his former colleagues in prison. Jenny Javanillo um, is serving a two-and-a-half-year sentence, and Jason Dades, um got 18 months. Um, we're still waiting for some other folks to get sentenced. Kanani Patikin uh, is scheduled to be sentenced in August. She... Uh, pleaded guilty to taking at least $28,000 from the same architect that Wong was working with. Um, and Wong will also be sentenced. So we're waiting on that case. Um, and then Jocelyn Godoy, um, she took only $820, much smaller in comparison with her colleagues. Um, but she actually might face, you know, in a way, the harshest punishment. She could be deported to the Philippines uh, where she, she was born. Well, you know, over the time that you've been tracking this, I mean, I know there were lots of complaints about monster homes and they, people were saying, well, why is this okay? And, you know, why is that okay? And so that really got people really questioning what was going on over there in that department. Right. I mean, just the number of these cases cast suspicion on the whole system and, you know, were projects approved because they were up to code or, you know, for other reasons. Um, in sentencing yesterday, Wayne Noy said that he, you know, never approved anything that wasn't up to code, that he just meant to help people by consulting with them after hours for a fee. Um, and prosecutors say he also sped things up for those who were paying him. Um, but yeah, it's it really suggests a systemic failure on multiple levels in the department. Um, and the director, Don Takeuchi Apuna, says she's been working to address this. But, you know, from the customers I talk to, it's they're not there yet. And, you know, these cases I know stem from uh, an architect, uh, Bill Wong, who uh, supposedly gave thousands of dollars to these inspectors over the years. Right. I spoke with his attorney, uh, Bill Harrison, and he said that Inouye was the one to approach Bill Wong, the architect. And, um, you know, he said, what choice did he have? You know, you're an architect. You're, you've got to get your job done. Your clients are yelling at you that it's not moving quickly enough. So it was really just the cost of doing business in Honolulu to be able to get anything done. You had to pay Wayne Inouye. Um, and that's according to, to Wong's attorney. Um, of course, you know, he says, you know, it was the opposite that Wong approached him. Who knows? Bottom line is money was flowing from customers to inspectors. And it really just um, it, it's a problem for the whole department. And then you were there in court. And uh, I, I know you said that something interesting happened and that the, the judge actually named a number of other small businesses that uh, allegedly gave uh, some of these bribes out. That's right. Um, I was surprised to hear that from the judge. Um, we were never going to find out the additional people that weren't charged, but that had allegedly given money to uh, Mr. Inoy. Um, but the judge made a, a point of, of naming them. Um, so there are three companies that she referenced from the pre-sentence investigation, which is otherwise confidential. Um, and those companies are Neon Electric Service, City Construction, and Honolulu Sign Company. I did speak with the owner of Honolulu Sign Company. Uh, the others didn't get back to me. Um, and he said, you know, he, he had no involvement and uh, would not explain why the FBI thought he was involved. And uh, uh, Mr. Inouye uh, retired, uh, but he will still collect his pension, uh, from what I understand from he your will. story, because uh, the law that they changed um, was just only passed recently. That's right. So he'll keep getting that paycheck. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Christina. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. You can read the full story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering an executive MBA.
More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. Today on The Daily, a Times investigation into how a group of Republican operatives raised $89 million through robocalls. They said it was for groups supporting police, firefighters, and veterans, but actually they spent most of it on themselves. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with Homa Nights, offering art experiences, live performances, and bites and beverages, with galleries open late on Fridays and Saturdays until 9 p.m. HonoluluMuseum.org. Bar Association is offering free in-person Ask a Lawyer clinics on Oahu and Kauai this weekend. It's part of its plans to celebrate this week as National Law Week. Volunteer attorneys from the Bar's Young Lawyers Division will be available to give legal information to the public on a variety of topics, including landlord-tenant issues, divorce and custody, and bankruptcy. The Conversations' Russell Subiono spoke with attorney Kelsey Nagata, one of the volunteers for the clinics. In your experience as an attorney and helping people, what are some of the areas of the law that local people are most frequently unaware of? I think the area of the law that people are unaware of, first and foremost, is the procedure. We understand as attorneys that the legal procedures can be somewhat daunting and intimidating. But for the most part, many of the questions that we receive during law week in years past have been about landlord-tenant issues or family law, sometimes a few probate and estate planning questions as well. Yeah, the procedural questions, I feel like those are ones that are asked pretty frequently. You know, we all see courtroom scenes on TV and, and in the movies I'm sure that's kind of the foundation of what we think happens. Do you find that that's kind of the thing that that people confuse or or may have preconceptions about because they've seen it so much in media? Yes, definitely. There's so many shows about law that are slightly inaccurate. And so I think that adds to people's intimidation with the courtroom and with law But uh, hopefully Law Week will, this year and for years thereafter, will help to bring some levity to those who need it. And as part of marking Law Week, the Hawaii State Bar Association Young Lawyers Division is offering a series of Ask a Lawyer in-person clinics. Can you talk about why there's a need for this? So Young Lawyers Division has been celebrated annually since, you know, the Young Lawyers Division has been with the Hawaii State Bar Association. And since 1961, when Congress passed the joint resolution recognizing Law Day USA, the Young Lawyers Division felt that it was important to bring the access to the general public to provide information regarding any legal questions that anyone would have to make the process more available. I think some people might think young lawyers might equate to inexperienced lawyers. How do you assure people that the lawyers participating in these clinics are capable of providing good legal information? Uh, We provide legal information for the general public. And of course, all of the volunteer attorneys are barred. They are able to be our practicing attorneys here in Hawaii. So all the volunteer attorneys are able to provide the legal information to help guide members of the public to answer any questions that they have. It is important to note that we are not providing legal advice to the people this week. Uh, We are only providing legal information, and so we can help to answer any general questions that the public may have or to provide access to a number of resources here in Hawaii that members of the public may not necessarily know about. I'm glad you brought that up. So when people do come to the clinics, 
what kinds of topics can they get legal information on? They can get legal information on any topics. We, as volunteer attorneys, will be able to help to steer them in the right direction which they need to go or should go to provide information as to whether they should actually hire an attorney and where they can find information regarding that or maybe to speak to Legal Aid of Hawaii, which has a number of resources for very little to no cost as well. You had mentioned earlier that a lot of questions, at least in recent years, have been about landlord-tenant situations. When you look at specific issues, are, are there any that kind of pop up or any that you think this would be a good setting for? I think that any type of law is fair game for anyone to ask, including family law, bankruptcy. I know a lot of members of the public, especially here in Hawaii, are small business owners. So those are questions that you could also ask us for information about. Is there any kind of restrictions on who can participate in these clinics? Do you have to prove your income or is it kind of just anybody looking for legal information? Yes, it's anyone looking for legal information. You can come to see us in person during our clinics this weekend or if you feel more comfortable, we are hosting a number of virtual legal lines that people can call in and speak to a volunteer attorney. And the Young Lawyers Division, every Wednesday, will host legal lines, hotline, between 6 to 7. So volunteer attorneys will be available to speak to anyone, like, similar to Law Week, you know, any questions that they have. It's just that during Law Week this week, we are opening up the hotline all week until Friday, at the same time from 6 to 7 p.m. Just like how we talked earlier about how many people have some preconceived ideas of the legal process, I imagine people have preconceived ideas about lawyers as well. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about lawyers that you feel should be dispelled? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think something that, of course, is very many movies and TV shows kind of displays that, you know, lawyers are liars or unapproachable, but we are not, you know, we are very truthful. We'll tell you what you need to know before regarding whatever information that you you need. And we are very approachable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think I might have toyed with the idea of maybe trying to dispel some lawyer jokes, but but really, (laughs) (laughs) but really uh, what I was, what I was really getting at is, you know, lawyers are people. Right. And and they get into law for specific reasons. And I'm sure there are many lawyers that get into law to help people. And so I'm curious as to why did you become an attorney? What's your interest in the law? You kind of hit the nail exactly on the head for myself. I went into the law to help people and to kind of give a voice to those who could not speak for themselves. What's your specialty? Do you specialize in a specific area? I do not specialize in a specific area. I do a general litigation practice. Where did you go to school? Did you go to school here or on the mainland? I went to school here at Richardson, the law school at UH. I feel like if you go to school here in Hawaii, you're bound to absorb some of the traditions and the culture here. Do you feel like when the Hawaii State Bar Association offers something like this, do you feel like... Like it's different than what may be offered across the rest of the country? I do think that we have a unique program here. I'm sure, as you know, and as the rest of you know, the public is, understands, is Hawaii is a very small community, and we're very tight-knit. And I believe that you know, this program that we offer this Law Week is all about uplifting that community in order to help provide legal information that seems inaccessible to become accessible. I know you can't name names. I know that's part of attorney-client privilege. But do you have a good story about someone who has benefited from these kinds of in-person clinics or from the hotline? I have a story of just someone who I have helped through, you know, listening through legal lines. They were trying to navigate the family law court procedures and they wanted to, they had many questions about how to initiate a case within family law and the family court system. 
And so we were able to help her to use the public forums online in order to get something started in order to help her proceed with her case. Did you happen to find out what the outcome was? Was she able to achieve what she had set out to achieve? I did not, unfortunately, get to know what had happened to that case, but I am very hopeful that all things worked out for her. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kelsey. Yes, thank you so much for having me. That was attorney Kelsey Nagata talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Nagata will be one of the lawyer volunteers participating in the Hawaii Bar Association's free in-person Ask a Lawyer clinics scheduled for Oahu and Kauai this weekend. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Help shape the future of Hawaii Public Radio. Nominate yourself for our Community Advisory Board. As a volunteer, you'll represent your neighborhood and advise HPR on programming, events, and outreach. If you live on Lanai, Moluka'i, Maui, Kauai, or the Big Island, we especially want you to apply. Apply by May 31st at hawaiipublicradio.org. for your backyard quiz answer. We asked you about an entertainer whose uh, comedic hula routines were broadcast to 600 radio stations around the world. Clarissa Clara Hiley created a stage persona around her antics, and her signature songs included uh, When Hilo Hattie Does the Hilo Hop and The Cockeyed Mayor of Kanakakai. Her brash and body style led some to call her the Polynesian Sophie Tucker. She had a recurring role on the original Hawaii Five-O television series and at the same time held down two shows a night, six nights a week at the Hilton Hawaiian Village Tapa Room. Her career spanned from the 1930s into the 1970s. She said she tried to retire in 1972, but said performing live was just too much fun. She is buried at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific under her married name, Clara Nelson. But Hilo Hattie was the name she is a name that she'll always be known by, and it was the answer to today's uh, backyard quiz that we were looking for. Congrats to our winner, Julio of Honolulu. You got it right. Uh, if you have an idea for the quiz to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. What happens when Hawaiians move away from Hawaii? The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked to Native Hawaiian Stacy Luando, whose first trip to the continent was a move to Murfreesboro, Tennessee. She left for more opportunity, a better life. She says she, but she has experienced name-calling and derogatory comments, but she stays strong and is determined to carry the Aloha spirit with her. I left Hawaii because, one, it was too expensive. Mm-hmm. Two, I felt that we needed a change to get away and try to be independent on our own mm-hmm. and to better my dad's health as well as ours. I moved with my husband, my two kids, and my father. I lived in Kalihi. How did you pick going to Murfreesboro, Tennessee? Picked it because my auntie and my cousin them live up here. We actually took the risk and moved here with knowing nothing about Tennessee or Murfreesboro. In Hawaii, I was working at 1350 Ala as an operations assistant, doing concierge, maintenance, and security in the condominium. Mm-hmm. And then now I am a scheduling manager for Murfreesboro for a company called Senior Helpers. 
I've been here for one year and two months. I felt it was a positive move for all of us. In the beginning, it was a little rough, but we we actually stuck it out and we made it. And I actually like my first girl, Tennessee. In what way was it hard, you think? Missing family, missing home, the local foods. Right. They don't have it over here. Where are you finding your lao lao? You must be cooking and... We make our own with spinach and pork. <laughs> they actually have a group called Coins in Middle Tennessee. So in the group, we all gather about a month, every couple of months, and we'll get together at a park and we play ukulele and guitar and we sing and dance hula and just conversate with each other. How many trips did you take before you decided to make this move? Because it is a huge move. Uh, I just took a risk and moved out here. So I didn't really been to the mainland. So, And do you feel like you're fitting in there? How are you feeling about it? Do you feel safe there? I feel safe here. I feel like I belong, but there's, there's a few that, that makes me miss home. Just the family, just my siblings being at home. My husband's missing his mom and dad and his siblings. She came up here with nobody. I have my family up here. When people meet you in Tennessee, do they know you're Hawaiian? They think I'm Hawaiian or I'm Mexican. (laughs) They think you're Mexican. I'm African-American. I just... They'll be myself and just tell them, oh, I'm sorry, I'm from Hawaii. And a lot of them will go, well, I didn't want to ask you because I didn't want to feel rude. But they can tell by my accent that I'm not from here. My kids are six and eight, and my daughter loves school up here. She has a lot of friends. My son is adjusting, and he has friends, and he's just loving school. At first, it was hard for them because they wanted to go home. But... They made an adjustment. Um, I think we would stay here permanently only because Hawaii is expensive and we can't buy a house up there, there, but we are planning to go back home for visiting. In what way do you feel like you belong and in what way do you feel like you don't belong? You do belong and you don't. Certain places. I can feel the love from people. And then you got the other places where you feel like, okay, you're not supposed to be there. And what's the difference between those two places? The people and how they can be nice to you and welcoming to you. But then you have the other part where they're like very rude, (laughs) ignorant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And is there a difference between their ethnicities? Are there different racial groups? that are yes. accepting you and some racial groups that are not accepting you? and There's a lot of um, Caucasians that don't like me, but then I try to adapt to them, and I don't change for anybody, so I basically just show the Aloha spirit that I've learned from home. And still do what I got to do to show the Aloha spirit. And then who is the group that's maybe accepting you more? It's actually a mixture of people. I have Hispanics, and I have the Caucasians, and I have the African-Americans that accept me. Hawaii is your home. Not just like a home you moved to, but this is your ancestral home. And yet, Mm -hmm. because of the economy... You had to move. Yes. I do miss home. That's where I was born and raised. But it was time for me to just pack up and leave Mm -hmm. and find a better opportunity up here. The best thing you can do right now as a Native Hawaiian, I do love my people. I love my island. I was taught to just give the aloha spirit to everybody. From generation to generation, I was always taught that no matter who's mean to you or who was racist or discriminated against you. So always try to show the love and show them kindness and not even worry about 
their negativity or their their hate crimes against you. That's really hard to do. Ha- Very hard. Um, I would want them to think think about what the person is going through. Put yourself in their shoes and understand the, the struggles or whatever they're going through. Mm-hmm. I put myself in their shoes and say, hey, what made them be the way they are? Mm-hmm. They get to, it could be a traumatic past. It could be just not having parents there. Um, they weren't taught that. I want to really thank you for your leadership in that way. Any other words that you want to say? The Luando family, I miss you guys. My husband misses you guys, and my my brother and my sister, them, I miss them so much. And 1350 Alamoana, all my coworkers and my residents out there, I miss them. And I miss the beach. Thank you so much, Stacey. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you, guys. That was HPR Stephanie Hahn talking to Stacy Luando, who moved from Kalihi to Tennessee. Luando shared her perceptions on home and belonging. Check out the conversation page of our website for other perspectives we featured this week as part of Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we have a Hanaho show for you. We'll be resharing our recent stories about plumeria. Give us some feedback. Got questions about something you heard on our show? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen uh, back to something you've heard, find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.